Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to Path of Innocence. And it's a continuation of our exploration of the teachings of Ramana Maharshi and the path of Advaita Vedanta that we uh, began in the seminar last week. And as you know, I think at this point, uh, besides wanting to get all of us together during this holiday season, which was the main reason I wanted to do a call, I'm also, uh, as it were, celebrating the success of my most recent uh, ebook publication called The Miracle of uh, the miracle of self-realization, and some of those insights are what I'll be share that I share with you today, are also things I wrote about in that book. Uh, so we have a, a few reasons, a few very good reasons to be here today, and of course the overarching reason, which is it will serve all of our uh, all of our process of awakening, which is of course the main reason to be here. So today we are exploring the spiritual path of Ramana Maharshi, as I have come to understand it. And particularly we're speaking about the inner work, the inner work of the practice of what he called self-realization. Sometimes it was called the practice of who am I? And the thing that's powerful about the, the you know, the teaching of Ramana Maharshi is in the lineage of Advaita Vedanta. And the fundamental idea of Advaita Vedanta kind of turns the paradigm that most of us have been conditioned by on its head uh, from the start. So we are, for the most part, conditioned in a paradigm of what I would call striving. So for the most part, we are conditioned in a culture which sees striving as uh, sort of an, almost the nature of life. The nature of human life is to strive, is to achieve, is to make effort to attain goals. That's such a huge part of how we are all conditioned to be and to live. And that same habit of striving, effortful striving, we bring with us into our spiritual pursuits. Uh, now, if you think about effortful striving, if you think about the what effortful striving would be based in, it would, of course, be based in some belief, some sense that something was either wrong or missing that through some effortful striving, we could either we could make right or find. So in a spiritual case, uh, it's usually a finding process, which is why spiritual aspirants are often called seekers. The idea of being a seeker is that you are looking for something that you hope you will find later.
the spiritual tradition of Advaita Vedanta turns that around, and it's not the only tradition that does this, it just happens to be the one that I have spent the most time working in, but it turns that around by starting with the recognition that we are already perfect. We are already that which we seek. There's nothing missing. There's nothing wrong. What's actually occurred is that we have become identified with a false and very narrow idea or perception of who we are. And because we're identified with this smaller, more narrow perception of who we are, there's a sense that there must be more than this, right? I mean, I'm sure everybody can relate to that feeling. Uh, in some form or another, I think for just about everybody who is seriously pursuing a spiritual path, uh, that pursuit was initiated by some recognition that there must be more to life than what, what I'm experiencing, what other people are telling me. That there's got to be more to it than this. There's got to be something more significant than, you know, in my case, it was there must be something more significant than getting a good job, buying a good house and retiring, you know, with a family. Not that those things are bad, but I, I found it hard to believe that that was the pinnacle of a human life, that that, was the, that that was the most that I could strive for. And so there was this uncomfortable feeling of being boxed in to an idea about myself and an idea about life that was uncomfortably small, too small for me to be okay with. And so the search begins, the search for, for what, what more is possible, what more is out there. But the way that I would want us to think about this is that um, when we become conscious in, in a given human birth, as we all have in this birth, we come to consciousness, we come to recognize that we exist, right? We become self-aware. And I mean that in the ordinary sense in which everyone becomes self-aware and everyone at some point comes to recognize that they exist, that they're a person, etc. cetera. Uh, when we come to self-awareness, the self that we become aware of is the personality that has developed during the course of this lifetime. In my case, Jeff in your case, whoever you are. Jeff, that was born on a certain day. Jeff, that had certain historical experiences through their life. Uh, Jeff, who becomes a seeker and look, looks for more. The self that we become self-aware of in that normal kind of human coming to self-awareness is, 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 is only the self of this lifetime. It's only the personal self. 
the one that's wedded to this lifetime. And that's not the limit of who we are. That's why it feels uncomfortably small. Because somewhere there's a recognition that we are more than that. So the journey of awakening in this Advaita Vedanta tradition is not a journey from the small self to the big self. It's not a journey to somewhere else at all. It's simply a remembering of who you are, right? It's like we forgot and then we remember. Remembering doesn't require that you go anywhere. There's no journey you necessarily have to take to remember who you are. You just simply have to remember. And the power of this teaching, at least the power for me was, and I'm sure this is true for everyone, we already know who we are. You know, when we remember who we are, it's not like we're completely shocked. We, it, this is why when they talk about the spiritual journey, they often talk about it as a return home. So when you remember who you are, you feel like, oh yeah, I'm home. I know this place. I know this being. I, I'm not, this is not something completely foreign to me. In fact, it's not, not only is it not completely foreign to me, it's actually, the most primary part of my experience and always has been. Even when I was completely convinced that I was much less than that, still the most primary part of my experience was that which I am, was that larger self. So that's a general outline of the terrain. Now in, in today's, I call today's seminar the path of innocence. And the reason I call it the path of innocence was, was probably multiple reasons. Um, one, because it, it followed along nicely from where we had gotten to last week, those of you that were on with me. And two, because it's a theme that I tend to associate with the Christmas holiday. And so it seemed like a nice one to, uh, to pay attention to. But more importantly, it's because as I have come to experience it, the lack of innocence is the biggest obstacle on this path of awakening. Because innocence, I mean very specifically to be that quality in us, which will allow this to be as simple as it is. You see, is this path of awakening is as simple as it could possibly be. Nothing could be simpler than this. But it's very difficult for us to let it be that simple. We complicate it. We try to figure out what it really means. You know, because what I would tell you is that fundamentally this path is saying, you are already that which you seek. So therefore, there's absolutely nothing you need to do about it. 
that is the, the core essence of how I understand the teachings of Advaita Vedanta. If you, if you strip them right down, it just says you are already that which you seek and there's nothing you need to do. Um, so what could possibly be more simple than that? Absolutely nothing, because you ha all you need to do is nothing. Just don't do anything, and you'll be fine. Just just give up the search. You know, uh, I think it was uh, Punja, the, the the Advaita teacher Punja, who was a disciple of Ramana and who was the teacher of my teacher. Uh, Punja has a book called "Give Up the Search," I think, or "Call Off the Search," which is you know a very pithy way of summarizing the teachings of Advaita Vedanta. Stop. If you want to find, you just stop seeking. That's how you find. There is no, there's nothing else to it. There's nothing out there that isn't, that you don't already have that you need to find that would allow you to stop looking. So if you want to find in this tradition, all you have to do is stop looking. There's another book by another teacher in this tradition. I can't remember which teacher it was but it was called uh, Finding is the End of Seeking. And, and what he meant was there, there is no, we want there to be something that we found that would allow us to stop seeking, something we can point to and go, okay, there it is. I found it. But usually it's, it's like unending eternal happiness that we're looking for. And if we find that, then we'll be able to go, okay, now, I'm not, now I can give up the search because I've got my unending eternal happiness. But the tradition is saying, no, you already are that which you seek. You don't need anything to prove it to you. You don't need to find anything to convince you. And if you did find something that would convince you, so if you did find eternal happiness and that convinced you, and then you said, okay, because I have eternal happiness, now I am fulfilled. Well, we would all love eternal happiness. So I'm not knocking eternal happiness and I'm, I'm hoping I find some, but the point is if you're only fulfilled, if you have eternal, eternal happiness, then you can't possibly be in a non-dual relationship to life. Because if you are only happy, if then everlasting happiness is one thing and that, is what is fulfilling and everything else is something else. And that's not fulfilling. So there's obviously two. The whole essence of a non-dual teaching like Advaita Vedanta is that there is only one. If there's only one, then, then there couldn't be anywhere else to find fulfillment in. There's only this. There's, there's so many different ways to talk about this. It means there's only this moment to be fulfilled in, this one. Which one? This one, the actual one that we're in, the one where we're looking at a Zoom screen. There's no other moment besides this to be fulfilled in. This is the only moment that exists. And no matter what it contains, whether it's a Zoom room full of people or blissful happiness, 
or fear and insecurity, it's still the only moment. So as I was saying, the challenge we find in this is allowing this to be as simple as it is. Because the entire path boils down to this is already it. You already are the the the, the you are you already are that which you seek. It's another book that someone wrote. You know, all these things are the titles of books already. Uh, you are what you seek. I'm pretty sure that was a, a Zen book somewhere. Um, <clears throat> You already are that which you seek. This is already it. Another book title, Alan Watts. This is it. Um, all you have to do, you don't even have to read the books. You just read the titles and you'll get the whole truth. Um, just go to the spiritual bookstore or the, the spiritual section on Amazon and you'll find enough, enough wisdom in titles of books. You won't have to read anything else. Um, and so basically all you have to be is done. Searching. That's it. There's nothing else. So what I want to do now is sit and meditate with you in silence. And the only instruction is to be finished searching. Nothing, nothing to look for. Nowhere to go, nothing missing. Done. Just be complete. Just be finished. finished with needing anything to be different than it is. So we'll just sit. And the instruction is to be finished and be complete and be fulfilled and be done. No matter what you experience, not needing anything to be different than it already is.
Okay, thank you all very much. So what I've been saying is that the essence of this practice and this path is to simply rest in fulfillment, in the recognition that this is it, in not needing anything to be different than the way it is. Simply resting and without searching, without seeking, without making any effort at all. And what happens in our experience when we do this? Almost anything can happen. None of it matters. It's all irrelevant. Because we're okay anyway. We don't need anything to be different than it is. What I'm talking about doesn't mean that everything's perfect in the sense that climate change is perfect, right? Clearly climate change is not perfect. Uh, there's, there's many, many things about life that are not perfect at one level. Um, what we're talking about, so, th so it's, it's the level at which we're operating is, is, a, is, a, is a higher level than higher. And I don't mean that in a, in, as a judgment. I say it's a, a wider level, you know, it's not a better level. It's just more expansive than the level of social activism. And the way that I would, the way that I would uh, relate, you, you know, your question was, how do I relate this to that? The way that I would relate this to that would be, are you okay with the fact that you Uh, incarnated in a world in such desperate need for social action? And are you okay with the fact that you have been called to social action so loudly your whole life? Are you okay with, with what you've been, the, the role that you've been called to fulfill in this life as a social activist? And are you okay that you were incarnate in a world in such desperate need. Yes, I'm saying that. And I'm, I'm maybe even more emphatically saying that you definitely were born to be this person. And I know it for a fact. And the reason I know it for a fact is because you are this person. You see, the, the universe doesn't make mistakes. It incarnated you as a social activist because you were exactly supposed to be here to do social action. And you know, what's difficult about social action and, and you know, the reality is I haven't done, unless you consider spiritual teaching social action, I haven't been that involved in social action. Uh, the difficulty I see with people who are involved in social action is it's, it's very draining 
And it's especially draining if they're in some kind of existential struggle with the way things are. But if they are sort of surrendered to the fact that they live in a world in need and surrendered to the fact that they are called to social action, then they just do what, they're, what they were born to do. And it's less draining than if there's a more existential battle going on, a battle that basically says the world shouldn't be this way. And I shouldn't have to do this because the world is this way. And evidently you have been called to do this. So that level of struggle against the way things are can be taken off the table. And then you have more energy for the real fight that you came to fight, which is all the social action work that you're already doing. You know, a discussion which is about surrender in the way that this one is inevitably brings up the question of fate and, and the flip side, which is free will and choice. You know, do we, you know, and, and it's a way, it's a very complicated question. I struggled with that question for years and I kind of came to the point where I decided it didn't matter. <laughs> uh, in other words, you know, do I have free choice? I mean, you know, the whole question of free choice is, I had this big argument one Christmas, it happens to be Christmas. I was visiting my family three years ago, I had a big argument with my father and brother who aren't interested in spiritual things at all about free will. And I said, well, in what, in what sense do you have free choice? You know, uh, you know what, what do you mean by free choice? You know, what we have, what we appear to have is, and this is even questionable, but we appear to have choice between options. But what options we have to choose from seem to be dictated by circumstance, you know, and we can we could get more into this, but we probably won't because uh, it's a whole other conversation. But, you know, myself as a white male, I have a certain palette of options to choose from. Uh, I live in the heart of Philadelphia. A lot of my uh, African-American brothers and sisters don't have nearly the same palette to choose from. Do we all have free will? Is my free will freer than theirs? You know, so there's circumstantial aspects to that question. Uh, and, you know, and then there's, of course, uh, inner circumstance. So I may have a free choice among options, but I also have cultural, uh, cultural conditioned preferences, family preferences, personal experiences you know, that are all pushing me towards certain choices over other choices. In the end, it gets very questionable whether anything that we do is actually a free choice, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so at some point I just decided to let go of the idea of free choice versus fate uh, and just embrace the idea that something's living through me. And, and the question is, what is it that's living through me? Is it, is it my, my cultural inheritance, my cultural proclivities? Is it, is it personal ideas I've come to? Or is there something bigger that wants to live through me? And can I surrender to that possibility? So, so yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. It's just, uh, it's a thorny and complicated question and, and in the end the answer doesn't matter that much right it's it's either fate or it's free will i love william james william james is an american philosopher and psychologist who, who 
this question bothered him quite a bit. And what he came up to, came up with is, is, is when I read it, that's kind of what settled the matter for me, which was, he said he believed, and I actually also do believe that there really isn't free will. You know, we, there isn't anything that could be considered a true free choice because there's so many influences influencing every choice. Even if there's some degree of, of freedom in there, it's, not, it's never going to be completely free. It's always going to be some, somewhat determined by influences. So he didn't really believe there was free choice. But, and I think this is very interesting, because we don't know and never will know all of the things that are influencing our choices, it's always going to feel like we're making a free choice. It never, you know, I mean, of course, sometimes it doesn't feel like you're making a free choice, but in, in many circumstances, it's always going to feel like you're making a free choice. And there's no way for you to not feel like you're making a free choice. So even if you said, okay, it's all fate. You know, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to do nothing. I'm not even going to try to make a choice. Well, that would feel like a choice. You know, it, it just seems to be inherent in, in, in the human condition that we are, that we're always confronted with the feeling of being free to make choices. Whether we really are or not is, is a whole other question that seems impossible to answer. You know, I mean, humans have been working on that one for uh, millennia after millennia. Nobody's quite figured it out. But I loved William James's thought, which is he didn't really think there was free choice. But the fact is, it was always going to feel like it is. So we could never come to a place where we could just let fate take over in a certain way, because even that was going to feel like a choice that we made. Uh, and the other thing that you spurred in me that I wanted to mention is, <clears throat> I believe that this recognition of, of the fact that this is it, is the beginning of the path, right? This isn't, this isn't the end. And to me, in the ideal, this isn't the end of, of some path of work that we've done. This is the, we start with a recognition. Oh my God, this is it. I'm already here. And then the, the, the rest of spiritual work comes in two flavors. One is whatever work any one of us needs to do in order to be able to relax and rest in the recognition that this is it. Because most of us will have that recognition for a second, but then it's, it's, it's very easy to slip off into something else. So there's a certain amount of work we have to do, spiritual work, which is the work that will allow us to rest in the recognition that this is it. And that at an ex existential level, there's nothing wrong. I'm here, I'm the right person living the right life for the right reasons, right? This was not a mistake. God did not make a mistake and put me in the wrong body or on the wrong planet. I'm here for a reason. And, and whatever we have to do to come to the place where we can relax and let that be the case without, without hemming and hawing, that's one layer of spiritual work. Then once there's this kind of trust and acceptance and surrender to the life that we're in, which, which basically means 
that's the point where all of your energy can now be released into the life you're in. Because there's no more part of you that's thinking, maybe this is the wrong life. Maybe I'm not the right person. Maybe did it. And so you're always like hedging a little bit and holding some of your energy out. At that moment where you finally find it in yourself to relax, all your energy rushes into this lifetime. It's like, okay, this is it. This is the, the great release of the recognition of, of the final, this is it. It just, all of a sudden, all your energy is available. Then your spiritual work changes. And then your spiritual work is giving yourself to whatever the world is calling from for you, right? You're here for a reason, right? The, the pre-work is whatever hemming and hawing you have to do to get to the place where you go, okay, I'm here, right? That's the big end point of, the, of, of stage one. It's like, all right, I'm, I give up. I'm not gonna try and be somebody else. I'm not gonna try to live some other life. I'm just here and I'm gonna surrender to this life. And then you go, oh, let's like the woman I talked to, Miriam. I'm here for social action. And the, the funny thing is, when you get to the place where you let go and you look at your life, you'll kind of see that you've always been doing what you were supposed to do. <laughs> like, you can't really, as Ramana would say, if it's your destiny to do something, there's nothing you can do to avoid it. And if it's your destiny not to do something, there's nothing you can do to make it happen. And so you kind of see, oh, everything that ever pulled me, drew me, compelled me was what my life was meant to be. And maybe I got lost and sidetracked on different things for different reasons, but you can always find that thread of who you are running through your life. And then at some point you just go, okay, I'm gonna just give myself completely to that. And, and I'm not gonna have any more second guesses. You know, this, this, the, the path of innocence could be as e it could be equally well called the path of no second guesses, right? It's the path of total commitment to being, to this life, to being alive. It's like our minds are really good at second guessing. I don't know if it's supposed to be like this or like that, or if I'm the right person, or if this is the right world. Or at some point you just go, okay, I don't know what's supposed to happen either. All I know is what is happening. And what is happening is what I'm surrendering to. And I'm gonna give myself completely to responding to what is and let go of any other ideas I have about the way it should be that's different than the way it actually is. I think what's, what's valuable about meditation is, it's, is it, it, it strips everything down. Because what's fundamentally in the way is our relationship to our minds in our identities and our emotional states and the and our thinking and meditation because you're sitting you know often with your eyes closed you're limiting uh the input so that you can you can become very cognizant of just how you're relating to the 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 passing mind moments that you experience and so you know that's why meditation for thousands of years has been a very time honored practice in in pretty much every spiritual tradition I know of. So it's got a long track record of being useful. That being said, as I, I don't think it's necessary. I think people can find that kind of inner peace in, in other ways and people certainly have. Uh, and you know, given what I'm saying, it, your question naturally can come up and it's come up for me to be honest because there was some point where I thought, why do I meditate? Like what's, I don't get it. Cause even, even sitting in meditation feels like it's 
falling in the category of doing something to find. And so I actually had to take a few years off of doing any meditating at all. Um, and what I discovered on the other side of those few years off is that I actually like to meditate. I like, I like sitting uh, and I like the quiet space of meditation. And so, so I, I do it because I enjoy it. And second, as I've written about in some places, maybe even in that Ramana book, I don't know, if the divine, because there's another aspect of this, which we aren't talking about, which has to do with divinity and the divine. It's a whole other conversation and it's a beautiful one. Uh, but if the divine has, has somehow bestowed me with the miracle of consciousness and, and given me everything that I need, then the best way that I could think of to honor her is to sit and need nothing, to show her that I recognize the true breadth and scope of her gifts. And I'm willing to just trust and surrender and be. And so sometimes when I'm meditating, I just feel like I'm honoring the divine. I'm showing her that I love her, that I recognize everything that she's given to me and that I appreciate it. And so, and so those are the two reasons why I feel compelled to meditate. One, I just enjoy it. And two, I feel like it's a way for me to express gratitude and to honor whatever it was that is the, the that created this miracle. I see, I love when people come to me who've been banging their head against meditation because I feel like if I can help them meditate in the way that I'm trying to suggest, they'll and this has often happened, people who've been banging their heads against some kind of form of meditation that they've been trying to conform to, when they're confronted with this, just let everything be as it is, they find a different relationship to it. So for some people, it may be that they, their idea of meditation could be tweaked, uh, could be altered, and they would find a path that they really felt comfortable in. But I think for other people, meditation is just for whatever reason, and I have no idea how this all works, but it doesn't seem like meditation is really the path for everyone. There's lots of different spiritual paths that people have traveled to find awakening. And, you know, there's, there's some people maybe need a, a more physically, you know, physical movement oriented practice. Some people may need to be in nature um, like uh, some people may need a combination of things. So meditation was a miraculous part of my journey in, 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 in ways that were so profound, I can't help but teach it. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's the only, it's, it's the only path or that it's even necessary. Um, all that really matters is that we find a way to be perfectly comfortable with the way things are so that we're not existentially fighting against the way things are wherever we find that however we find it is irrelevant the only thing that matters is that we find it if you can give up the preference for the witness then you can be then you can start to find the sort of underlying everlasting joy because it's all equally okay with you
it's all part of being human. Sometimes, sometimes I'm, I'm here, sometimes I'm here, sometimes I'm here, sometimes I'm the witness, and I don't have a preference. And then you can just start watching how your consciousness goes in and out of these different states. And if you are very comfortable watching how consciousness moves in and out of states, you will eventually realize that you were never in any of those states. You were always, even the witness, the, 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 the quote-unquote witness is a, is a more limited aspect of consciousness than who you actually are, which is in the, in the, in the Hindu tradition, what they call Turiya, the fourth state. It's the, it's the or Turiya Tita. It's the, it's the awareness that is aware through all states and is, is not identified with any of them. It's a perfectly free awareness that's always running in the background, even when we don't recognize it. It's, it's true of any practice. There's always going to be some kind of anchor seed. You know, even Ramana's practice, he talked about, um, you know, turning the awareness in on itself and asking, who am I? So that, that would be your trigger. Your trigger question was, who am I? So anytime you get lost, you ask, who am I? You get lost, you ask, who am I? You get lost, you ask, who am I? So there's always going to be something. You follow the breath. You know, you, you visualize something. And, and, then, and then you're inevitably going to struggle because you, you're never going to be able to be, I don't think, 100% locked in so, so I'm just going to teach it the way that Ramana did. Yes. So, so anytime your attention wanders, you say, who am I? And you come back to the, oh, I'm the awareness that is aware, right? And, you, and then you, get, you go off and you come back and you go off and you come back and you get off and you come back. Eventually, and we talked about this last week, eventually, if you practice diligently enough, it will become, and this is what you're saying, it will become a habit to always come back. Right. And, and like you said, it's kind of happening on its own now. Mm. You, so you've developed a habit that as soon as there's a recognition of being lost in thought, there's a movement back and it happens mm. automatically without you needing to do anything. And then the stronger that habit is, the more you don't even have to worry about it. Right. right? Which is kind of part of what I'm saying, which is then, you know, you go in and out of thought and you just realize, well, every time you're not in thought, you just automatically return to the practice. You don't have to do anything about it that you've developed a habit where you go off, you come back, you go off, you come back, you go off, you come back. And it's, it's just happening all by itself. And then you just watch it happen and go, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> no matter how many times I go off, I get lost again. And then I get lost again. And then, so that's what Ramana called attainment. And, and if you can develop that habit, according to Ramana's teaching, that's as far as you can go through your own effort through your own effortful practice is you can develop this very strong habit of always returning every time you move away and it happens all by itself right? it doesn't feel like you're doing anything anymore mm -hmm. and then if you are resting in that habit first of all you're free anyway so you don't need anything else then because you're it's all happening by itself but if it's our karma this is the way ramana would speak if it's our karma karma we may have the miraculous realization of grace, which takes us from attainment to realization. And, the, and that realization is where suddenly you realize, oh my God, I really am the awareness that is aware. I really am that centering consciousness. I never was the one getting lost. 
there was a, an aspect of me that got lost, but I was always the one that watched it got lost and then watched it find itself again. And, and when, when you have that realization that I really am that, something shifts. And, and at that point, nothing bothers you that happens in your mind. The lo getting lost, not getting lost, coming back, going. At that point, you have no idea what the difference is between meditation and anything else. Besides the fact that you're sitting on a cushion when you meditate, just watching everything happen, the rest of your life, you're just walking around watching everything that happens. There's no, you start to wonder, what's the big difference? Just the sitting down? Just the sitting on a cushion? Or, or telling myself an instruction? It's kind of like you start to realize that the practice of meditation is just the practice of being. And being is what you're doing all the time. You're never not being, right? And so then you think, well, I'm always meditating because I'm always being. I'm always existent. Meditation is the practice of existing. And I'm always existing. So therefore, I'm always meditating. It's a useful analogy that the sun, the sun and the clouds, right? So initially, we start on the path. We're on the ground. And... Initially, for most of us, it's all clouds, right? It's just one big cloudy day. Uh, and then maybe we have a moment where we see the sun. And we're, oh, the sun, you know, then it's amazing. And then we want to get all the clouds out of the way so we can see the sun. And the, the goal of our practice becomes to, to maintain a clear line of sight between us and the sun. <clears throat> and we want to keep all the clouds out of the way. And it's kind of exhausting because... Clouds keep coming, and the fact is you don't have that much control over them. Then uh, at some point you realize, oh, the sun doesn't go away just because it's a cloudy day. I don't need to make the clouds go away. They'll go away all on their own eventually, so it doesn't really matter anymore. I don't need to maintain a clear line of sight with the divine to know that she exists. She exists anyway, uh, and, and then we can relax around whether or not we happen to be seeing the sun, because we know it's always there, even if it's a cloudy day. Uh, and then that's, that's the kind of freedom that, that I think is really valuable. When we start on the path, this is my experience at least, when we start on the path, what's very important to us is what our experience is. So, Am, do I see the divine? Am I experiencing the witness? Am I aware of, this, of the freedom of the sun? And then at some point, at least for me, I realized the miracle, it doesn't really matter what I'm aware of. That's not the point. The point that Jeff is aware of, of anything is not the point. The, the thing that's a miracle is that that exists. That, the, that divinity exists, that the sun exists, that freedom is possible, that the witness is there. The fact of it is all that matters. Whether I happen to be experiencing it in any moment or not is of such a secondary nature. I mean, it's important to me because I prefer when I'm in this kind of open sky witness state or I prefer when I'm in direct contact with divinity. But the fact is in terms of existence, the miracle, the thing that I'm on my knees in gratitude for is that it exists, that there is a divine source to this life, 
not my life, not only my life, but life is actually sourced from something that's sacred and mysterious and divine. And that just knowing that that's the case is enough. And if I happen to be in the middle of a cloudy day, so be it. It's a cloudy day. You know, the sun is not, divinity didn't go anywhere just because I can't see her. She's always there. So with that, I want to leave us. It was beautiful to be together today. Uh, and just, I appreciate all of you always and the energy that you bring and the love and the compassion and the joy that you bring to me just by being who you are. Uh, so I love you and thank you all so much. <laughs>